All right. Jay Harris, pastor of Image Church. How are you doing? Doing good, man. Happy to be here. Yeah, and I'm happy you're here, too, because we're going to touch on some of the, the major race issues happening right now. Um, but before we do, you're a pastor of a church in Springfield, um, yeah. downtown, and you kind of have a unique church because it's, it's fairly multicultural. Yeah. Um, you're a black man. Is that okay to stay on the radio? Oh, most definitely, okay. yeah. And, but your church is... it's. It's it's heavily mixed. Yeah, You've got whites, blacks. I think I've seen a, a couple of Hispanics when I was there. Mm -hmm. um, how does that happen? You know, the way we planted it was really different. Um, so I came together with a buddy by the name of Matt Jensen, and he is a white guy from Mandarin and uh, from here in Jacksonville, Florida. And you know, when we first got together, we, you know, he had a vision to plant the church, and uh, we rolled around in what most people would call a hood, and that's where. Um, you know, Matt really felt like God was calling him to. And I said, you know, when he first came to me, I said, hey, man, man so you, uh, you, is that imply when you say he's from Mandarin that he's white? Yeah, 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 pretty much. Yeah, yeah. And so, and, um, so, you know, but I just was like, you know, I said, you know, what's all this church planning business about? He was like, man, you know, you know, there's a million places in this city you can go to where they're building right now. And it would be a, a big financial move to play in a church. And he was like, we're going the opposite way. We're going where nobody wants to play in a church because it's not lucrative, but it's where people need to hear the gospel. And so that pretty much ended up being health zone one in the city, which is one of the most, you know, it's one of the hardest zones we have in the city where your murders, killings, sickness, all type of things like that. And so, um, so we wanted to really just preach the gospel we believe there. and uh, But, you know, because of the dynamic of him preaching and his his experience and, and what, you know, the, the crowd he has an influence with, me being known in the street, so, you know, pretty much, and just being active in the city with the people I run around with. Because you, you, you had a clothing store yeah, downtown. Yeah, yeah, I was downtown in the middle of Art Walk on Lower Street right next to Chamberlain's Coffee Shop. And so I was there for three years prior to um, taking a uh, pastoring position at the church. And so I saw everybody in the city, you know, like every, every just culture of, people and I talk to everybody I'm just that's just what I do so white black it doesn't matter and um and so taking that influence coming into the church now you got this church full of just extremely economically diverse racially diverse and everything else and so you have millionaires sitting in the room with people who live in the homeless shelter directly across the street from us they're millionaires who are they no, um yeah I, I can't kidding. tell you <laughs> that's awesome that's really cool and then so Right now, the church is in a place where there's a transition period? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, with transition period, um, Matt, who I preached with, he actually just um, stepped down as pastor. I just took over as lead pastor of the church before we did something that was unique where we co-pastored. Um, and you don't see that quite often, no, but never, we, actually. yeah, we really shared responsibilities and, and, and took it on ourselves. And so now I stepped in a lead pastor role and that just the fact of a black man taking over church that is that diverse, which is less than um, your diversity in the United States is probably about 2.5%, you know, it, which is absolute anywhere from 25 to 5% for a church being diverse. That's like on a 70 to 30% makeup of, of a race. And I don't understand that. You're saying that most churches... Uh, Two percent of churches, you would say, are, are di diverse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, so, so the majority are homogenous, and it's just all black, all white, or there's just a little sprinkle in there. Right. So, you, when you talk about diversity, you're talking about only like two point five to five percent. And out of that two point five to five percent, 
I have yet to been able to find actually a black leader leading whites at all. And that's and I know a lot of pastors, but I haven't found one yet. And not to say that there's not one out there. And so we have something really unique in um, the fact that image has even through this transition. We still got a little bit of ways to go, but we've retained most of the white people in our church. And we've I would attribute that to really honest conversations. We call people out on racism on both sides of the fence. Um and we we just approach that from the most loving way we can and show that, hey, this is not what we're here for. And and people are being hurt. The people next to you in the seats, the people who are laboring here in this church and moving forward with you. Um, so what does it look like to love them? And so we call people to that. And that's made some really hard conversations, but beautiful stuff, the type of stuff that you think that's going to tear everything apart. Um, but it hasn't torn everything apart. Actually, the conflicts and the hard stuff has, I think, yoked our hearts up closer. So do you feel like, is there a temptation sometimes when you have to deal with the race conversation where you have to pretend like you don't experience it or feel it or think it because you are, you're a black man, you've got white people in your church. Like, how does that, how do you process that, especially with what's going on right now? (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, one thing I'm thankful about the church and the people there are they they're really brave for leaning into this conversation, um, and they've let me be me and be honest. Um, I, I don't think anybody in the church is unfamiliar with my position on things, and I'm able to be very honest about being a black man, my experience in this country, um, and the hardships I've gone through, being beat up by the police, the type of bitterness it's put in my heart. Um, but my commitment to the church is actually to fight for the gospel and for Jesus and the way he would approach it over that. But I'm honest about what I'm fighting against. This is what has happened to me. And there is a potential for that bitterness to be used the wrong way. And I'm having to fight that. And then I give them room for their story. It may be the opposite. They may come from a white family who has instilled a lot of racist things that are hurtful to me. But I give them grace, mercy, and I let them I let them fight for this middle ground that, you know, I think is higher than even our hurts and our pains. And so been able to be honest about that, but it's been gut-wrenching to, to even the process to know I could go there. So that's been a journey to work into the conversation with the people. Um, and so it's a, it's a hard thing to do, but we've been able to do it and, and pushing to go deeper, you so, know? Yeah. And that's really, that's a hard conversations to have. Yeah. So you, before we went on um, re- recording this, you had mentioned like, what's, and I asked you, what's, what's, what are you thinking when, with everything that's going on? Yeah, uh, yeah. And I'd like for you to share that. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of things that happen in the middle of that dynamic of these conversations. One of the, one of the things, I can tell you one of the after effects is sometimes I feel extremely disgusted when the conversation's over because sometimes I feel like I'm, trying to prove to somebody I'm a human and that that throws me into all type of crazy mental spaces um so that's some of the damage from the conversation um you know know what that means meaning like yeah so meaning like sitting explain you know when I'm being confronted by some of my white members and they're going hey you know I think that you're wrong about this I think you're wrong about this and you know their converse the, the the things that they're hitting me with to me, I'm looking at them and I'm like, this is actually a blatant racist statement. The fact that you're even asking me to prove my credibility to even lead you, um, which you've had white leaders here and you've never asked them to do it. Even my white leaders are like, 
I see the racism because nobody's ever asked the questions that they're asking about you taking over in a transition in the church. Um, so stuff like that, that becomes that's really obvious to me. And I'm sitting there and for the sake of loving them through it and walking them through it and bearing with them with patience, I'm I'm dealing with it giving them truth, but being loving with it, but I actually want to scream a little bit and, you know, and, uh, yeah. and curse a little bit in the process. So having to restrain that for the longer good and to take a long walk with these people and help them see over time what it looks like for us to love each other, um, that, that, if, that hurts a lot in the process. And so do you extend that over to like the greater conversation nationally and what's happening? So what's going on where, because I think what you were saying <clears throat> tell me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. that you feel like black Americans have to fight to prove, like, hey, like, why why, why is everything we're saying just being yeah. pushed away? Like, yeah. it's not real. It doesn't exist. Like, like all, of the, all the black Americans in this country are just making up a grand story. Yeah, yeah. That, that is, that's, um, that pulverizes my heart. It really, really does. Like, one of the things about it is that if you... The conversation is not a, a intellectual conversation. It's a heart conversation. And, um, and because we can be as book smart as we want to, but if you turn around and look back throughout history from where we're at right now, um, my white friends have never been on the right side of this conversation. Black, peoples have been, black people have been screaming out, and then they said, I don't know what you're talking about. You look at, be, look at even the Gallup polls from back in the day, like Tim Wise was pointing this out. Like, even when voting and everything and education was, was clearly profoundly off, we still were like, no, everything's fair. 90% of white Americans said it was fair. And right now, to this day, we're repeating history because— Black people are screaming out saying something is really wrong and it's off and we're being mistreated and we're being oppressed. And white people are standing in the same foot, same um, footprints as their parents before them and, and grandparents and so forth. And they're going, I don't know what you're talking about. You need to get your pull yourself up by your bootstraps the way we did. And it's like, well, most white Americans, if they turn around and look, they'll agree like, yeah, that was a jacked up time. Well, we're in a new time right now, but it's still the same story we're screaming out and we're playing out the same role. So the fact that black people don't have credibility to even lift their hand and say, hey, I'm hurting this way. The cops are treating me this way. This is the reality that we see. That's absolutely gut wrenching. It does something to the, the inner part of a man that is just a very, very ugly thing, because at the end of the day, the the the. To me, the, 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 the statement is, you're not human. You're not a full human being to even be regarded, you know. And um, I liken it to somebody being raped. What credibility does somebody else have to sit before a rape victim and tell them what their experience was like and what they went through? Um, right. So you're looking to see how you can... <clears throat> What did you do wrong in this situation? That's like for the rape victim. Like, was, yeah. your, was your was your dress too short? Did you drink too much? And there's, you know, did you bring it upon yourself? And yeah. that's and that's what I see. You know, there's such a quick, you know, I, I love Facebook. So I think it, it, everybody's they're willing to be more honest because yeah. <laughs> they think no one else is listening. Yeah, it's, sc it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> but um, and I gotta put I gotta pull myself back on that. Uh, I love hate Facebook, but anyway, I mean, there's, you know, um, when. Um, Alton, Al Alton, is that his name? Yeah. Shot recently mm -hmm. um, in Louisiana. Um, you know, they put his uh, criminal record on on Facebook. And so, <clears throat> which to me says a lot. 
What, what are we saying? We're saying that the police now have the right to kill because that's not their role. The role is not to be judged. Yeah. We don't want them to be judged. Their yeah. role is to say, hey, here's a violation of the law. And now we have a system in place as broken as I think that system is. Yeah. The police are not the judge in the situation. Yeah. And so there's always this place of having to discredit somebody. And when we do have this, when we do have a situation where they can't discredit somebody, I mean, then it's just it doesn't exist. Yeah, you know, it just doesn't exist. Yeah, it gets swept under the rug really, really quick. And um, you know, I've actually had the opportunity to speak to several police officers that have, I mean, they've just admitted to what they've seen. Like, you know, I haven't had this conversation from the cheap seats. I've been able to really get in front of a lot of police officers. Um, you know, I was just in, in Washington, D.C. at the Department of Justice and at a roundtable with 14 high-profile um, law enforcement. And, you know, I remember there was a kid there that was speaking about how he just got picked up and for nothing. Then these officers went and took him and busted all these drug dealers in his city. And then um, and then they dropped him off and they lied um, where they, 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 they said we arrested him somewhere, which really is not where they arrested him. And they had no reason to. And luckily, the school camera across the street from his house saw where he really got arrested. And he was just was getting coffee and milk for his grandmother. And this kid actually has programs where he works with the law enforcement. And he was naming names. He's like, hey, I work with y'all people. And they were like, you're a liar. And they took him. Long story short, when he told that story during the roundtable in Washington, in Washington, one of the officers next to him goes, man, that's messed up, man. He was like, I just remember the first five years of being in law enforcement. I used to do that to people all the time. And I'm like, cool, man, I appreciate your admission. But I'm like, that's horrifying. Right. You know, even here in Jacksonville, Florida, we just saw a video a couple months ago where a rookie officer knocked out a woman in handcuffs. Right, right. What kind of culture do we have when you can actually be a rookie officer, knock somebody out, and then everybody immediately goes back to doing paperwork? <laughs> like, that's really, really scary. Yeah. Um, and I don't hate police. I hire one. To, I hire one for my church every week, and I love them, and I pray for their family, and I actually grieve for the hard job they have. But it doesn't mean I'm not sober about some of the crazy stuff. I have my own story of being beat up by them, and so, you know, it's 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 a hard conversation. Right. So, I mean, the the culture of the police force is one where you listen to the police officer and if you don't do what they say, you know, there's going to be severe repercussions. And so we're all supposed to be um, a little bit afraid and that sort of dynamic. And I don't uh, you know, I don't know how you change it. Obviously, yeah. if I did, I would write a book. Yeah. You know, but um, but that's what I'm seeing has to change because it's not just, you know, I know plenty of white women that when they see a police officer, they want to go on the other side of the street because there isn't a sense of safety with a police officer. There's a sense of fear. Yeah. There's a sense of like, I don't know. My whole life can be destroyed in, in a yeah. moment. Yes. And that, that risk gets greater the darker your skin color becomes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's... um. It, it, it's it's absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, one of the things I think is being lost at the moment right now that is really hard for me is that, you know, I think police have the best opportunity right now at this moment um, to, number one, come forward with some admission about what's broken. Um, I think that if, if we can get off the side of trying to justify what we do and actually going, hey, there is some stuff wrong, there are some bad apples— People in the community, I think, would be that's a very, very big step. And how can we support you? But um, to not acknowledge what has proven to be a reality is is just puts fuel on the fire. And, you know, I think in these neighborhoods, 
the opportunity to actually make advocates in the neighborhood, not enemies, not people who are just like at war with the cops and scared of them, but to actually come in and love on the people and actually do what your job is to protect and serve. Man, the cops are in a royal, amazing spot to have some amazing change on some of these neighborhoods if their position is adjusted in the way that they do. They're, they're not there to be enforcers. They are actually there to be people who actually love the community and the community wants to be protected from criminals. But if you're now on the same playing ground as far as a threat as a criminal, yeah, I'm not snitching to you. And I I don't think you're going to protect me because these drug dealers in my neighborhood are real and they will kill me. So, yeah, you know, so I think they're shooting themselves in the foot in the way that they carry themselves and they're missing a grand opportunity to lead the people right now. So do you think that when that, everyone is kind of viewed as a criminal when you're just discussing the neighborhoods that they're walking into. Is That's your perspective. Yeah. 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 I think that's the perspective of a lot of police officers and, and the way that they uh, position and poise themselves. And it's not every police officer by any means. There's some who are conscious and trying to make, um, are trying to be the difference. But when the general experience for, you know, when I can stand in front of 20 black guys that I know and everybody has a story, that becomes to be a problem. That's a that's a real problem, you know. Let's uh let's talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter and yeah. that seemingly strange debate to me. Um, I guess I want to ask: When you hear All Lives Matter, what goes through your head? Yeah, when I hear All Lives Matter, what I hear is the way we have always historically tried to snuff out snuff out any black momentum that is um, meant to uplift black people. Um, black Lives Matter as an organization, I don't really roll with everything that's at the heart of it, but I, I, I sure as heck know that I understand what the need for the statement. And it's not a statement about white lives mattering any less or anything like that. I'm a hundred percent solid on that white lives matter. I know that because uh, for several situations, it makes it the, the reality for me. I'm just wondering if black lives matter. That's what I'm, you know, trying to figure out. And so, um, so that it's, it's so demeaning and it's so hurtful, but I think that we've seen this historically. This is where I was saying earlier that white people have been on the wrong side of this conversation all throughout history. And so you have Martin Luther King, who is going through the ridicule of marching. What are you doing? Y'all are stupid. What are you marching for? Well, it proved to be extremely effective. And I'm looking at people getting mocked today for marching. And then I look at people pick apart the Black Lives Matter movement. But the same people are taking the time and picking apart. They're not coming nowhere near none of these freaking neighborhoods at all. And they're not. And, and, I, and I wish they would pick apart the country and the racism they see on that side and not a black movement like, oh, we got to pull this apart right when we see it. I'm like, what about all the racist organizations that you frequent or staying with every day or looking you bear them doing it? You don't even matter of fact, you don't even take the time to look deep into it. But for Black Lives Matter, now we're going to get a whole essay on Facebook about everything that's wrong with it. And I'm like, like I said, I don't agree with everything with it, but I'm like, crap, I've stood with a lot of people that I know are just blatantly racist. And um, and so th- that's that that's what's disheartening with it for me. You know, gotcha. Yeah. Oh, what I find interesting about the All Lives Matter movement is when they 
throw facts um, into the air that say, you know, more white people are shot by police <laughs> than, yeah. than, than, than black people are, um, which, you know, doesn't take into consideration the percentages of the population. But it also calls to question, when do you get to say, well, why are so many people being shot, period? Yeah. You know, so, you yeah. Know, and I don't know if that's been awakened or even understood. So if you are willing to say all lives matter, what, what that means then is that you should be supporting a Black Lives Matter movement because all lives matter. And yes. so under that umbrella, umbrella then is why aren't you listening to this group of people who are saying, hey, we're we're feeling totally wrong. We're not feeling totally wrong. We are being totally wrong. And that's not happening. There's a, I, I find it sad and humorous that a group of people are saying, no, we're just as oppressed yeah. <laughs> and just as used as you are. So then what's, then what's the issue? If you are being oppressed and you are yeah. being um, violently, violently acted upon, well then, then we can have a really good conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No one needs to prove who is being worse, tr- treated worse. If yeah. If, if we're both being treated badly by the police, we're both being shot, then maybe we really do have a systemic issue that we need to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. I mean, you know, it's, um, when you when when I think about this conversation and I think about just the game that gets played in it, like you know I watched I watched something on the news last night where there was this police officer reading the sti- the statistics for um, violent crimes in um, in New York City and his stance was he looked at the statistics and he was like see blacks are prone to criminality. And then, you know, and then the black guy there went completely crazy. He's like, are you seriously saying that? Like, you know, and and he's like, you know, so he's looking at the statistics going, something's wrong here systematically. And what happens in that conversation, it really bothers me when people are really quick to just adapt the idea that, yeah, black people are animals. Because if they say that, they can stay out of the neighborhoods. They don't have to go look at what's going on. They could go, there are animals over there. We don't have to go see what's going on. We don't have to get involved. We don't have to do anything. They're just simply animals. They don't want to learn every and just run through the list of stuff. Instead of hearing this when we say, hey, we're actually being treated like animals over here. Because if somebody accepts that and receives that, then it's like, well, what can I do? Like, what's going on? T- teach me a little bit more about this. And... That's where the conversation is broken. That's why I feel like this isn't all a head conversation. It's such a heart conversation because at the end of the day, at the root of this, this is about people not loving their neighbor at all. It's a, you know, if my neighbor comes outside and goes, Hey man, I'm getting, I'm getting attacked over here. My, my, I believe my human responsibility is to show up and say, Hey, what's going on? Let me see what it is or whatever. Well, what if my neighbor says, Hey, well, it's actually your dog over here attacking me. I need to receive that and go, I'm sorry. Let's see how we can fix this so we can move forward. And, um, I think the self-righteousness and the dodging of any responsibility doesn't make you a monster because you're responsible, but it will make you a monster. If we keep, keep dodging any responsibility, anything, I'm the first one to say I'm guilty in this conversation. I like I'm not perfect in the middle of this. I'm not innocent. Black people are not perfect and innocent in it. After this conversation, there's going to be a lot of stuff going on in the hood that we need to address. You know, a lot of ideas that we even perpetuate ourselves that are harmful to ourselves. But right now we're talking about systematic injustice and racism in the city and abuse from police officers. And 
we need people to look that in the face because it's the only way to go forward. If not, we're left with just daggers in our hands trying to kill each other. Um, so, yeah, so get all right. So go deeper with that. So as a pastor mm-hmm. who's uh, leading a multicultural church, where's the redemption? Where's the story? Because yeah. you, you definitely, I mean, you have a perspective. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, so I can preach a little bit. Okay. All right. So for me, um, the way that I preach this out is I try to lead a church into a very sober conversation about this. Like, I believe that the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for your sins and he took all the wrath that was supposed to be for people and he took it on himself. And so as a human being, I know that my sins are covered, but that doesn't make me walk around like, hey, I'm good and just try to defend myself. Actually, I'm free to look in the mirror and see my sin. So I try to lead the church in honest conversations. I try to lead my white brothers and sisters into a conversation where they go, man, I'm actually walking around hurting people and I'm blind to this right here. And I'm like, yeah, come on into the light. You're free to like God has you. He's covered you. And like you actually you'll never grow until you can actually admit what's wrong. Like you holding on to, no, that's not me. No way. I'm a good person. I'm like, that actually is going to keep you stuck. And I'm like, you're actually free to explore where you're broken at. And I may, I'm actually able to explore where I'm trying to point my finger at some of my white brothers sometimes. And I'm actually, that's actually racism come out of my heart and admit it to them and repent to it. And, that's why I think we've seen something that fits in a 2.5% box. It's, you know, we, we get up and we do this church thing every day, but what's happening is truly amazing on the corner of Liberty and Confederate Street right here in Jacksonville. And so, but I give all credit to that in the, in, in the gospel that we preach because it's allowing us to come out of hiding even if we look like monsters to each other. And have a real conversation and forgive each other. And I really don't know any way to go forward in it but like that because everything else, like I said earlier, is us pulling out daggers to going, see, you're the monster. You're the, but if I say, hey, brother, you're the monster and I still love you. You're wrong in that and I see where you messed up. But guess what? I'm one too. Let's keep on moving forward in this so we can see healing. And then I need for people in my church to be sober in the context that we're in because it's it's all black people. It's an ocean of black people around our church that we're sitting in. And they cannot go out and preach to nobody unless they're willing to be long-suffering, hear people, speak people, hear their stories and everything else. But if they walk out and try to discredit them and go, no, no, it's not real, that's not happening, game is over, you know? So... Is that happening? Are, are the people in the congregation going out into the neighborhoods? It's, it's yeah, it's happening. So we well we ha- we have a one of our biggest attacks for our context is through the school system and um, to attack the problem. So we 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 mentor. Um, I have several teachers on staff. I have other people. Excuse me. I have several teachers in the church. I have other people on staff that have programs going on at Jackson. We have stuff at Lehigh School. Um, we work with Second Mile, um, which is a nonprofit foundation, um, and we work with Baselli Foundation also. And I have several people in the church that are employees there. So we get through the community with those means. With what you know, the very thing I'm talking about with this, with this sober realization of the brokenness, the systematic um, brokenness, and we go in and love with being wide open and understanding what we're dealing with you know not coming through with a drive-by hey I'm gonna throw some clothes at you but knowing that we're actually stepping in to take the long walk with the people we're building relationships with because it's not hey you need to do better do better and drive off nothing works like that Um, you have to take the long walk with people so that's the way we've been functional and active in the community all right Jay 
thank you for your time. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Most definitely. Can I? Can 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 I? I want to, can I tell my personal story real quick yeah, about my situation I had with the cops? Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I want to tell this story is because I think people need to understand um, a lot of people, a lot of people don't have the framework for what it looks like to be abused by the police. And so sometimes I think they need it to hear like, um, like, wow, that really happened to you. So they can start to think through this stuff. But, you know, my personal situation was I had a situation where um I had a family member and they got in an argument and um, uh, one of the younger members of the family saw them arguing and one of them grabbed each other's hands. There was nobody hitting or anything like that. But anyway, I pulled up to the scene and um, one of the family members was in a police car. So I walked up to the police car and I said, hey, you know, I'm going to get your crap out the house. Don't come back over here anymore. I raised my voice a little bit, but I only... That was about three seconds, two sentences that I raised my voice. So a police officer walks over to me and says, hey, hey, we're not going to have this crap out here, you know. And I've seen hatred and anger in the eyes of a white man more than once. I knew what I saw as soon as he even made the statement. And so I and I, I was in a predominantly white neighborhood. And I said in my mind, I said, this is a good place to kill a brother at. So, you know, just being honest, that's the reality I move and function in is to have to be wise with those dynamics. So I immediately threw my hands in there and I said, yes, sir. The officer started screaming. His face got red. He was spitting in my face. I turned my face to the side, kept my hands in the air, and I said, yes, sir. And I literally backed up about 15 steps very slowly as he was basically charging me an inch from my face screaming. And so... When I couldn't walk anymore, I, I came to a stop, and the officer bumped my face, and I still kept my hands in the air, and I said, yes, sir, I understand, sir, no problem. It won't happen again. Well, he looks over at another officer who's sitting on the front of a police car, and he says, what do you want me to do with him? And he says to him, knock his ass out, just like that. I have both hands in the air. I've said yes, sir, 20 times in the meekest, most humble voice I can. This officer reached back and swung at my head as hard as he could. I've been in the streets before. I know how to duck and dodge a little bit. So I already knew what was coming, and I ducked out of the way. But, you know, that turned into a rumble, and then they went ahead and proceeded to play kickball with my head for a little while and so maced the other, me. The other officer joined in. Yeah, two more officers jo- joined in. They took me and they arrested me, and um, and I went back and I tried to do something about it, and it was like, hey, we can't do anything and everything else. That mentally did a number on me for quite a while. Um, the hatred, the the idea of unjustly being held down and put inside of a cage, um, being maced, um, being stomped on by other human beings that you just gave as much respect as you possibly knew to, um, that psychologically damaged me for a while. Like, you know, and I thank God because, you know, I found in my heart now where I can actually pray for this officer and his family, wherever he's at and pray for his safety and, and, and still work through forgiveness sometimes. Um, but have you ever reached out to him? No, I I haven't. I haven't. Um, you know, initially after that, I wanted to reach out to him, (laughs) you know, but, uh, um, but no, just only reached out to him in prayer, just to be honest with you. But, um, would you reach out to him? Most definitely. Most definitely I would. I would. But I, you know, and, and I say that I'm answering a bit quick, but there's a part of me or whatever that You're st- I, I'm hesitant because I don't know if I could endure right. 
somebody denying what happened. Right. Um, and and I might I, I was about to snap before that might throw me off the edge. Right. You right. know, I look at this guy who shot these police officers, and that was um, that was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. And as I thought through the situation that happened to me, and I felt afterwards. I identify with the hatred that was in that guy, and it, it, it scares me. I don't. I haven't even processed all the way through it. But the fact of the matter is we have a lot of men walking around this country right now who are actually in the same place as that guy um, that shot those officers, which was a terrible move. But they're not all shooting officers. They're shooting each other in the hood. But they're literally in the same place as far as going over the edge. Right. Um, but, you know, if somebody treats you like an animal or like you're not human long enough, you start to really feel like it's true. Um, and, 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 and so the push with even the statement of black lives matter, uh, matters, it, it's, a it, it's a, it's a push for somebody to try to find some dignity and say their life matters. And what I would urge a lot of my white brothers and sisters out there who are listening is that they join in and support it. Um, I went to the rally the other day, some of the things that were being chanted, I didn't agree with, and guess what? I didn't chant them. But I still was out there and I was supporting them and I was talking to some of the kids and some of the kids were like right off the bat. Hey, we want to come to your church. Um, One of them last night, I'm looking at one of the kids in the march and he keeps posting RIP to all the pigs. I talked to him last night and I was like, hey, I know you're smarter than this. This isn't the way I know you're hurting and everything else. And so um, I'm not trying to play a middle ground that. Um, blankets over what's going on, but I am trying to play a middle ground that actually leads us forward into something productive. Um, I'm not trying to play safe in the conversation. I am a mad and I am an angry black man, um, but I'm also a believer that believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it means that I'm just as guilty as any cop or anybody I'm mad at. So I have to fight for something else than just throwing a rock at somebody, and that's kind of my position in this whole conversation. Um, and yes, How do you deal with How do you handle white Christians who you know like you've you know like they're your brother and sister and and, in the faith and I don't know like they're I I don't even know what you'd call them like I I just want to you know the Donald Trump like what that's so that's hard for me to process yeah Uh, I'm a Christian it's it's hard for me I don't understand how how I pray with you yeah I don't know how you can look at me who's an Iranian and wonder if I'm going to like secretly, if I'm a Muslim, am I going to do something evil, that sort of thing? I don't know how I get to pray with you. And and it's really unfair to have like this conversation to me is also unfair. Cause I know like I have my white brothers who are like, you're such a jerk. Arash, cause yeah. like, I, I love you and I've done many sacrificial things for you. And that's true. Yeah. You know, but anyway, that's like, how do you, how do you process that? I, um, I think I take it on a day by day basis. Um, I, it, it, it drives me mad. Um, it's hard because being a pastor, um, I think one of the things that I'm able to gain credibility with people in um, outside of the church. The reason why I've been able to do that is because when they go. Yo, you Christians are jerks. I see you all the time in the bull crap you do. I'm like, you are exactly right. I feel exactly how you feel. And then they're like, well, you're a Christian, though. You're a pastor. And I'm like, yeah, I am. I go, and I believe in this gospel with all my heart, but I'm very sober about what you're talking about. Um, and so, man, it's, it, 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 
it's hard because I have a lot of personal relationships there. I'm invited onto platforms there where I know people are completely opposed to who I am. Um, and so I'm always wrestling with, do I play the game or do I go ahead and let it go and, and, and say things the way I really feel, the way we're talking on this radio right now? Because in, in many churches, they would go, get him the heck up out of here. They would pack us both up like, no way. Right. Um, and so... I've had to just, I think some of my resolve is in, in staying where I'm at and knowing that God loves me where I'm at um, and then trying to give that back to other people. But it's hard. It's gut-wrenchingly hard. My hand is on the delete button on Facebook all the time, ready to get rid of and unfriend people, but I keep them close in hopes that this long walk and this long conversation may eventually touch some people. And the reason I, I gain more hope even with my church, because I have people that I've had this conversation like with white people in the church who are the blind people we're talking about who blindly hurt people and won't accept their racism, won't accept it from anybody. And then I've seen them get it right in front of me and go, oh, my God. I have to walk around this room and tell a bunch of people I'm sorry. Um, so it's not a really offensive thing to say to a white person, though, Jay. Like you are blindly racist, and mm-hmm. and so I think like I, w- I can imagine my white friends going, maybe, but you are blindly racist too. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it may be offensive, but. I just, we got to have some big boy conversations. So I'm okay with tripping and slipping throughout of it. I'm like, I'm okay with, um, and as a matter of fact, I don't think there's any other way to do it. Like, I'm okay with somebody poking me in the eye and showing me what's really going on with me as long as I could poke them back. I've, the, what I've experienced is that this conflict in this conversation, if we decide not to get up from the table, we actually draw closer. We're all scared of it, so we run from it. And we have the conversations with our black friends or my white friends go have the conversations with their white friends because we think that face-to-face can't sustain, um, like our relationship can't sustain that. So you need to be able to say to your white friend, hey, you're blindly racist, and your white friend needs to be able to say to you, I kind of think the same of you. Most most, most definitely, yeah. most definitely. Me and my me and my um, partner Matt Jensen, who I was preaching with before, yeah. our whole um, path along this walk leading this church has involved us in the room screaming at the top of our lungs to each other really? on several occasions oh, like how that. racist we are. <laughs> pastors cursing each other out, but we made a commitment from the very beginning is that we would never leave the table. So we will literally go off on each other. And I would say, you are freaking racist and blind. And what, do you, how, what am I supposed to do with my family now knowing where you stand in this situation? I got to go, you know, like getting really, really into it. But then we made a commitment. We sit right in the room in the office, even if we're there for 30, 40 minutes in dead silence. And before you know, it just feels like God shows up. And then one of us is like, you know what? That was some racist crap I said, bro. And I said, you know what? The way I just talked to you was messed up. I'm right. <laughs> but I shouldn't have talked to you like that. Yeah. And that has actually drawn us closer as friends. I Just to be honest with you, I'm known for having several white friends, but I've never had a white friend that close in my life. And it came through hard, hard conflict. Um, and so to me, it's the only way forward. He hasn't always said everything right, but he, showed, he sure has made me go home grieving for my racism towards him like where it literally hurt my heart and I was hurt to treat my friend like that but it brought forth healing and um and 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 you know he didn't run and I didn't run 
You know, even when my black friends were like, why are you messing with this freaking white boy? He's 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 racist. And I'm like, yeah, I see him, but he's in it with me and he's not going nowhere because guess what? I'm racist, too. He's pointed out to me last week. I hear myself more than ever and I'm not going nowhere either. Um, so there's a certain disdain that even comes for making the stand to even take this walk with one another because he had to go home to his white family. They're like, what are you hanging with the black dude for? Like, what's that about? Like you letting these black people tell you about what time it is. And then my black friends are like, so you're running with the white boy. So there was this there's a lot socially to digest even in coming together to even take a stand. But what's it's worth it. I've been there and I can I can attest that it's worth it. And what's on the other side of it is beautiful and it's beautiful for our communities. And um, and we're in bad shape if we don't step up to the to to what it is and bring change that way. That's awesome, Jay. Anything else that you want to touch on? Nah, man. I just love you, brother. I appreciate you. That's all. Yeah, thanks. I, I really appreciate you as well. Most definitely. Right. Amen. Let's stop this.